Trust that is our prayer as we come to the word this morning. I invite you to pray with me before we look into the scriptures. Dear Lord Jesus, help us not to be so busy serving you that we never get around to sharing you. And Lord Jesus, please have your Holy Spirit be direct with me so I can be direct with your people so that all of us can be direct with non-Christians. We ask this, Lord Jesus, in your magnificent name, amen. Evangelism, do it directly, is our title this morning. Uh, This sermon is about sharing our faith uh, directly. Uh, Directness is sometimes awkward and sometimes humorous. We knew an older lady in one of our pastorates, Mary Naylor was her name. She's a very direct person. She was being seated in the morning service at her church one morning, and a well-meaning usher said, well, Mrs. Naylor, just as nice as ever. And she said, Mr. Jones, I can be nice and I also can be nasty. She was direct. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 4, an amazing true account of the Lord Jesus' directness out of love and concern for a very troubled woman at a well. John 4, beginning to read of verse 1. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a spring of water, a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all this way here to draw. He said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not 
your husband, but you have said this truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Jesus was pointed in this encounter. He was direct. He didn't beat around the bush. He was direct with a person who especially needed directness. And in this amazing true story, I see five concrete ways that your Lord and Savior and mine was direct. Here are the five in overview fashion. Number one, he was unconventional. Two, he was unprejudiced. Three, he was unapologetic. Four, he was irreligious. And fifth, he was unambiguous. I want to take these quickly with you one by one. First, Jesus was direct by being unconventional. When you see it, verse 27, please, you see this with me. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why do you speak with her? They marveled that Jesus was speaking to a woman because in that time it was unconventional, ill-advised, unexpected for any man to speak to any woman that he did not know because it was seen as being somehow inappropriately forward. But Jesus was unconventional. Let me be personal with you this morning. You may well know of some people it would be unconventional for you to speak to about Christ. Would be abnormal for you to speak to about Christ. Would be uncommon for you to speak directly to about Jesus. Perhaps a Muslim. Perhaps a prostitute. Perhaps a Jew. Perhaps a powerful politician or a businessman or woman. Perhaps a liberal clergyman, someone who is blind and is leading the blind in the church, perhaps a pew warmer on your left or on your right, a person who is faking being a Christian. Oh, we all have people that it might be unconventional for us to talk to about salvation. But praise God, Jesus was direct, and he was unconventional, and he spoke to a woman. Secondly, 
Jesus was not only unconventional, he was direct by being unprejudiced. Please look at verse 9 of the account. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We need to understand, if we don't understand already, there was great religious animosity between Samaritans and Jews when Jesus lived. The Jews saw themselves as being holders and beneficiaries of the covenants of God, and they saw Samaritans as being half-breeds. They saw them as being half-breeds genealogically. They saw them as being half-breeds culturally. They saw them as being half-breeds spiritually. And so Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't like Jews very much either. They saw Jews as being arrogant, snobs, uncaring, uncompassionate. And so when Jesus was moving from Judea to Galilee, the land of the Samaritans was right in between. And Jews would take that journey either from the north of Galilee to the south of Judea, would go all around, they'd skirt all around Samaritan territory because they didn't even want to meet a Samaritan. They were too disgusted by Samaritans. And if a person were to choose to go from Judea to Galilee and skirt around Samaria, it would add one to two days' walk to the otherwise straight journey through Samaria. Therefore, is it not very interesting and compelling that when we read in verse 1 and following, when therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Verse 3, he left Judea in the south and departed again to Galilee in the north, but he didn't skirt around Samaria. He walked his disciples right through the Samaritan territory. And verse 4 says he had to pass through Samaria. No, he didn't. If you're talking about geography, if you're talking about exertion and making the walk, he didn't have to pass around Samaria, but in his redemptive love and heart and grace, he had to go through Samaria to meet this woman, to meet all the men she knew in the city, and to give them salvation through himself. He had to go through Samaria. And as the Darvilles are willing to do, They have to go through the seamy and underbelly of Bahamian society that's hidden. And so do we. Jesus was direct because he was unprejudiced. We must be. Probably you know some people who need salvation in Christ that other people have negative prejudice against in our culture. The Rastafarian person with HIV, the Haitian, the incarcerated person. Brother Joe Sweeting is in the jail this morning, as he has been for decades, sharing the gospel with prisoners imprisoned. We all know people that other people treat negatively with prejudice, that Jesus Christ calls us to take the gospel to in an unprejudiced heart and lifestyle. Jesus was direct by being unprejudiced. 
He cared about the Samaritans. He cared about the woman at the well with the checkered past. He cared about the Samaritan men in the city that were in her network of friends. Jesus was unprejudiced, and Jesus is unprejudiced this morning. Number three, Jesus was direct by being unapologetic. Look at verses 16 to 18, would you? 16 to 18, John 4. Jesus said to this woman, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you are now with is not your husband. This you have said truly. Jesus was unapologetic about calling her sin, sin. He was direct about her sin. He was unapologetic about being direct about her sin. Where's your husband? He pinpointed the woman's need because no one will get saved, church, who doesn't first know they are lost in their sins. He went right to the core of it, and we must follow his example. (laughs) Sometimes directness about moral issues is almost humorous. We always raised our children to understand that smoking was a bad decision that would kill you. Saw anybody smoking? We say, see that? They're making a bad decision that'll kill them. So J.D. and I, when he was a young tyke, were standing in an amusement park line for a very popular ride, and the lady beside us was smoking. J.D. looked up at her and said, you're making a bad decision and you're going to die. Like, what, do you, what do you say to that? I didn't know whether to spit or wind my watch. I was just at a loss. So I said, we hope you don't. There's something precious, though, about a child. He wasn't putting her down. He was concerned that she'd die from smoking. We ought to be more concerned that, Jesus, that people are dying without Jesus and going to hell. And so Jesus pinpointed the problem. She said, I have no husband. And he said, you've answered accurately. You've had five husbands, and the man you're shacked up with is not your husband. He was unapologetic about calling fornication fornication, or perhaps it was adultery. The the text doesn't tell us if it was fornication or adultery, but it was one of the two. And Jesus was unapologetic about telling her she had sinned. Jesus, will you notice, did not say, I understand that you're shacked up with this guy because you've had a lot of losers as husbands. Nor did Jesus say, I realize that a lot of people live together before they get married. I realized Jesus didn't say, you know, I admit you're a victim of five bad marriages. It would be really hard to commit to a man, wouldn't it? Jesus didn't say any of that. By the way, Dr. Laura Schlesinger, a Jewish psychologist, no longer on the radio. I enjoyed a radio program and the advice she gave to her listeners usually. She said to a woman who said, I'm going to get married, who was living with her boyfriend. I'm going to get married. And Dr. Laura would say, do you have a ring and a date for the ceremony? Well, no, he hasn't gone. She said, if you don't have a ring on your finger and a date for the ceremony, you're not engaged. Jesus was direct. He was unapologetic about pointing out her sin, and we must follow suit. No one will get saved, brothers and sisters in Christ, if they don't understand they're lost in sin. Think of King David when he lusted after Bathsheba on the roof of her living quarters, bathing. And he had her brought to himself, and they were intimate, and she had a baby. 
And here was David going on as king as if he had done nothing wrong and trying to orchestrate and cover his sin of adultery and wound up planning premeditated murder of Bathsheba's faithful and valiant husband, Uriah, who was on the battlefield. Because you know what? Sin is like mushrooms. It thrives in the dark. David wanted to keep his sin of adultery and lying and murder in the dark, but God wouldn't stand for it. And he sent a man, a man named Nathan, to King David, and he called it the way it is. Hold your places in John and go to 2 Samuel with me, 12. 2 Samuel 12, beginning at verse 7. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up an evil against you from within your own household, and I will even take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do these things before all Israel and under the sun. God had his prophet Nathan be direct and unapologetic about calling sin, sin in the king's life. But there was a happy and God-honoring result for that. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's why we're unapologetic and direct about pointing out someone's sin. Not because we're superior, but because we want them to know that God's forgiveness and holiness in a new life in Christ. Nathan didn't come to the king and say anything except, you're the man. And eventually God gave us Psalm 51 from a repentant King David's heart inspired by the Holy Spirit who has helped, this psalm has helped me and I, I would venture to say all of you to confess with a contrite heart our sin that God has made known to us by his spirit. Psalm 51 came out of God's servant being unapologetically direct about another person's sin. Abortion is not a woman's choice. It's a premeditated murder. Gossip is not sharing prayer requests. It's decisive speech that is divisive and unholy. Sweethearting is not okay and standard practice for marriage in the Bahamas. It's breaking marriage vows. It's adultery. It breaks, destroys, rips apart families. Going into numbers houses and casinos to gamble is not entertainment. These are sinfully poor decisions of stewardship of God's money. This is sinful striving after money which one has not earned by wholesome and decent labor. In sharing our faith, my friends, we must be direct about sin. 
we must be unapologetic about calling a person sin, sin. Jesus went straight to the woman's sin. Go call your husband and come here. You have said, well, I have no husband for you. I've had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said, well. No one will get saved until they realize just how lost they are in sin. But things have gotten so bad in superstar television Christianity that now so-called Christian pastors won't even name sin in their own lives or in the lives of their televised audience. That's how bad it is. Pastor Joel Osteen, now the pastor of America's largest congregation, 45,000 members. Congregation meets more than once on a Sunday in a packed out former NBA basketball stadium. Sometime back when television journalist Katie Couric asked Pastor Osteen, and I quote, why don't you give people more of a moral template? That's a quote. Pastor Osteen had this answer, and I quote, there's enough pushing people down in life already. When they come to church or to our community meetings, I want them to be lifted up. I want them to know that God is good, that they can move forward, end of quote. That's a very sad, incredible body of Christ. The pastor of the largest church in the United States of America this morning, 45,000 people in that stadium, untold numbers of people watching Pastor Osteen on television, untold numbers reading his books where he will not name sin. God have mercy. It is truly pathetic in the eyes of heaven and a grief to the Lord Jesus that a Christian pastor would believe that pointing out sin is pushing people down. That a born-again, maybe, pastor would be deluded to believe that not pointing out sin still provides a way forward for his people. Jesus was direct and unapologetic about calling sin, sin, and we must be the same. So far to review, we've seen that the Savior was very direct as he helped a Samaritan woman out of her sinful lifestyle and into forgiveness. We've seen that Jesus Christ was direct in being unconventional. He spoke to a woman. Being unprejudiced, he spoke to a Samaritan. Being unapologetic, he boldly identified her sins. But there's more. Jesus was direct by being irreligious, not religious. Look at verses 19 and 20, please. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers, fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The lady was coming under conviction of her sin, and she went a religious tangent. She said, I'll get him on a debate about religion. I'll get him on the fact that Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim, and Jews worship in Jerusalem. I'll just sort of put up this smokescreen of religion, and it'll sound pretty good to a prophet. Jesus didn't bite. Jesus said, worship is not about a place, it's about a person. Worship is not a place, 
It's about a posture of yieldedness, consecration, confession of sin. He didn't get in a debate with her about religion. Verses 21 to 24, I love how he didn't get sucked into the religious debate. 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus directly pointed out to this dear woman that worship is not a place, that worship is a person, that worship is a practice. God in Christ is the person to be worshiped. For salvation is from the Jews, it says in verse 22. Spirit and truth are the posture. We are to marry spirit with truth in our practice of worship. The truth is the scriptures. The spirit is the ministry of the Holy Spirit of the scriptures. And when we come together to worship either corporately on Sundays or in our own prayer closets through the rest of the week, we must be in the book. That's the truth. And we let the author of the book, the Holy Spirit, minister the book to our lives. Spirit without truth is emotionalism. Truth without spirit is formalism. Spirit with truth, married, blended together, centering on Jesus is acceptable worship to the Father. Spirit with truth, centered in Jesus, is worship acceptable to the Father. He didn't get sucked into the religious debate because Jesus wasn't religious. Some of the most scathing things that our Lord said in his public ministry were to the religious dudes. He called them whitewashed tombs. He had some of his most harsh words and deeds for the two-faced religious people, the people at the temple who were selling doves and animals for sacrifice at ten times the price, gouging people coming to worship God in spirit and in truth. And these guys, the religious guys, were selling them animals to sacrifice at ten times the normal price. You know what Jesus did? (laughs) If he ever wore a what would Jesus do bracelet, you better remember this part of what he'd do. He got a whip. And he drove those guys out of the temple. What would Jesus do? Sometimes he'd be righteously furious. So get to the gospel in a direct way, being irreligious. Share the gospel with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Share the gospel with the people who think God wants them rich, devotees. Share the gospel with the name and claim it kingdom authority people. Share the gospel with Roman Catholic people who are worshiping church tradition. We're going to share more on that tonight. So be direct. Christianity is not a religion. Salvation is a relationship with Christ by faith and grace. Jesus was direct, and we must be direct as we evangelize. Jesus was unconventional, woman. Jesus was unprejudiced, Samaritan. Jesus was unapologetic. Go bring me your husband. Jesus was irreligious. Those who would worship God would worship him in spirit and in truth. 
And last, Jesus in this story was direct by being unambiguous. President Calvin Coolidge went to church when he was president of the United States, and Mrs. Coolidge stayed home. And the president went to church, and he came back from church, and Mrs. Coolidge said, how was church? And the president said, pretty good. What did he preach on? Sin. What did he say about it? I think he was against it. <laughs> we must be unambiguous. Sometimes painfully clear. Sometimes awkwardly clear about the truth. Our son is so clever and Another time at the dinner table when Joanna was off to college and J.D. was eating and uh, not speaking and Beth and I were talking about college tuition and the money that Joanna needed in Chicago for extra expenses and how much it was costing. And J.D. just was eating and he looked up and he gave us a solution. He said, unfriend her. (laughs) Unambiguous, man. It's the way you solve it. But look how unambiguous Jesus was in verse 10. If it, Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's unambiguous. Verse 14. But whoever drinks of this water that I, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. That's unambiguous. Verse 26. I, who speak to you, am he. Compared with the first part of verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. And Jesus said, I'm him. I'm him. We must be unambiguous about Christ when we share our faith. We must be unambiguous about who he is. That he's the only Savior provided for a world of sinners. That he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. That he's the judge at the great white throne judgment. We must be unambiguous with people about what he's done. He's defeated sin. He's defeated Satan. He's defeated death. He's made the gifts of forgiveness and righteousness and heaven possible for rebels like me and you. We must be unambiguous about Christ. Larry Moyer, as you know, is a friend of ours. And when his son David was little, he and... Larry's wife, Tammy, were in Walmart, and David, a young fellow, I'm not sure how old he was, maybe eight or ten, David turns to the cashier at Walmart and says, what are you trusting in to get yourself to heaven? She said, well, I'm trying to be a good person, you know, my good will be my my bad, and David turns to his mother, Tammy, and says, tell her about Christ, she ain't going to make it. (laughs) Jesus was not just a good teacher. As the Masons say, the Freemasons say, Jesus is just a good teacher. That's what Jewish people say. He's just a good teacher. Some Christian liberal churches say, he's just, he's just a good teacher. No, he isn't. He's God. Remember, people won't see their need of the Savior if they don't see the reality of their sin. So we must be unambiguous about Jesus Christ. Evangelism, do it directly. 
We're seeing from the Savior's encounter with a troubled woman at a sweltering hot well. By the way, she went at the sixth hour. That's high noon because all the other women wouldn't go and draw their water in the heat of the day. And why didn't she want to see the other women? Because she was shamed by them. She was the talk of the gossip town about all the husbands she's had, about the man she shacked up with, snide remarks, dirty looks. She decides, I'm going to get my water when it's the hottest part of the day and all those other people won't be there. Church family, I love you guys. We must mimic Christ by being direct. The time for soft-shoeing around and dodging the issue, and if, if uh, this or that happens, I'll see it as an open door to share my faith. That's over. We aren't to be cute or hesitant or fuzzy about Jesus. We're called to be direct with non-Christians. Heaven expects you to be direct about Jesus. And in that directness, be unconventional. Jesus spoke to a woman. You might need to speak the gospel to a Muslim or a prostitute or a pew-warming fake Christian. Be direct. Be unprejudiced. Jesus spoke to a Samaritan. We might need to speak the gospel to a Haitian or to a person in jail. Jesus was direct by being unapologetic. Jesus called adultery and being shacked up sins. And we might need to call somebody who gossips or gambles or sweethearts, call them on their sin. We might and should be irreligious. Jesus was direct by being irreligious. Jesus said that worship was not a place. Rather, worship is a person and a practice, the practice of marrying and blending the Holy Spirit with scriptural truth. That's worship. And we might need to call religious persons out of their religiosity, Jehovah's Witnesses. God wants you to be rich Christians. Name it, claim it, churchgoers. Roman Catholics. Jesus Christ was direct by being unambiguous. He referred to himself, to this woman, he referred to himself as living water. He referred to himself as being the exclusive well of water springing up to eternal life. He referred him to himself as Messiah. And so, church, we must be unambiguous, crystal clear about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. Last Thursday, a dear brother from this incredible body of Christ came and told me that his saved cousin had died. The brother went on to say his last day on earth was his first day in heaven. I love that. I've never heard it said that way. Do you have family or friends or business associates who, that you know right now that if it were to be their last day today, it would not be their first day in heaven? Do you know people who, if today was their last day on earth, it would not be their first day in heaven? Get direct. Get direct must be. If Jesus had been indirect with the woman at the well, then what we wouldn't have in the story is verse 29. 
Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? The grammar in the Greek there is really she's asking this. Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. You can't tell me he's not the Christ, can you? There would be no testifying of a newly trusting, wayward woman of faith in Christ. There'd be no testimony of her going to all the men in the city and telling them the Messiah is out at the well. But praise God, Jesus was direct. Jesus started by being direct from going from Judea in the south straight through Samaria to Galilee. Don't you know his disciples were ticked about that? Samaria. Those people. Then when Jesus said, go buy some lunch so you get out of the way here, I'm going to do some evangelism. (laughs) So they had to walk five miles to the nearest place to get food. They have to walk five miles back toting the food. How do you like that? Toting. (laughs) But not in furl. (laughs) But they had to go five miles to get the food and were out of the way so Jesus the Messiah would share the truth directly with the woman. And when they come back, they don't know what to make of it. They just don't know what to make of it. Sometimes Christians in the church won't know what to make of it when you're direct about the gospel with other people. You'll say, I was direct with the guy that pumps my gas about Christ. I told him straight how it is. Some of the even believers will go, really? Really? Yeah, really. We have to be direct. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I confess my times of indirectness. Lord, we're so easily distracted. We want people to like us so very much. Sometimes we have things in our heart about people we don't like that shouldn't be in our hearts. Cut through it all today, Spirit of God. Start with the man in the pulpit, the men on the platform, and all of your people in the pew. Cut through it all that we would let down our nets for a catch this week, that we would pray for the five you laid upon our hearts each day. Thank you, Jesus, for being direct to come to us in our sin. Save us. Make us new. Fill us with your joy. Fill us with your passion. Fill us with your burden for lost people. For we ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.